Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Greta Thomas. And I'm Claire Hatton. We're all about producing content where you can be inspired by and learn from amazing female entrepreneurs and leaders to help you achieve and even exceed your career goals. Before we begin this week's episode, though, it would mean a huge amount if you could rate and review our show if you haven't already. Consider it as your kind deed for the day. And we'd love to hear from you. So why not follow us or message us on LinkedIn, mention the podcast and we'll be all ears. And now enjoy this week's episode. Hello, everyone. Boy, are we glad to be back behind the microphone. Sorry if you missed us last week. We were both laid up with COVID, the dreaded COVID. Yeah, you can say that again, literally laid up. I feel like, well, we did totally lose a whole week and if you're wondering what it felt like for me it was like the worst flu I've ever had actually whoa yeah well same it felt like a pretty bad flu for me too but you know now we're back we're even more excited having had to wait to be bringing you this week's episode with a truly fantastic guest absolutely now Joe Flynn is group chief commercial officer for the Mandarin Oriental Hotel Group and she's also a member of their board. She joined the luxury brand last year after more than 12 years with Google in Asia, where, amongst other roles, she was managing director of Google Singapore and oversaw significant growth and expansion. British by birth, Joe spent the past 20 years working in Southeast Asia. And if you're contemplating your career or thinking about changing roles in the future, then you have come to the right place today because Joe has some of the most thoughtful musings that she shares with us in this conversation on exactly those topics. Yeah, that's right. Now, in this episode, you'll learn the incredible story of why Joe nearly didn't apply for the top job at Google in Singapore and what happened to make her change her mind the opportunities she feels she wasted because she wasn't super clear about what she wanted next in her career. How Jo then got super clear on what her next role needed to look like and how she manages the challenges of leading a truly global team without working 24-7. There's such great stories and amazing insights and advice in this conversation. So without further ado, enjoy this episode with the insightful and passionate Joe Flint. Joe Flint, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thank you, Claire and, and Greta. It's a pleasure to join you today. And we've known each other for quite some time, haven't we? I'm not actually sure how many years it is. This must be more than 20. It's about 20. I think I met you in my first year in Singapore through some mutual friends when you were living in a shop house in a very beautiful part of Singapore. So yes, back in the day. Yes, indeed. I know. And what a lot has happened since then. Oh, yes. My goodness. Well, we're going to talk about a few of those things that have happened to you anyway through this interview. But before we do, as our listeners will know, 
we like to ask a question just to be able to let our listeners really know who you are and put you into perspective in sense of what you do. So if you were to describe yourself at a dinner party, let's say you sat down next to somebody you, you hadn't met before and they said, so Joe, what do you do? What would you say? I work for a global hospitality brand and my role is to help find ways to grow the business for the long term and what we need to do to get us there. Awesome. That is a pretty fantastic brand, isn't it? Mandarin Oriental. Yes, it is. And it's, it's an interesting brand because it's a small brand relative to so many of the big global brands and it's almost grown organically. But it is a delightful brand because of its size. And it really has managed over the many, many years, last 50 years to, to punch above its weight. So it's exciting to watch how we're taking something that essentially has been born in, in this beautiful region of Asia Pacific, but actually is now building a huge amount of relevance globally in so many other parts of the world. And I think that is what makes this a really interesting brief for us as we look at growth and opportunity for the brand and the business. Yeah, it's a really exciting brand. And it's one that I was absolutely love staying in, particularly in Hong Kong. Hint, hint, says Claire. <laughs> that was not Absolutely. That was well, if only we could get back to Hong Kong and, make, and relive those, oh, those days know. and those experiences. But uh, for sure, hint, hint, no to <laughs> So, Joe, swiftly moving on from that, is there a story of how you came to be at Mandarin? Oh, there is, but it's probably part of a slightly bigger story, which is sort of how do you look at life and the things that sort of matter to you? So I think probably if I just give you a little bit of a view in that context. So guess what? Just like you, Claire, loved travel, was fascinated by it. And that was really inspired by two things. One was my father was a journalist, so he traveled a lot. And it was always so exciting when he'd suddenly got a phone call and had to be at Heathrow Airport and, and then went off somewhere to cover news, wherever that was in the world. And that really inspired me at one level. But the other was actually, I lived under the flight path. And, you know, as Terminal 3 and Terminal 4 In the UK, through, this is. In the UK, yes. I was brought up just outside Heathrow Airport. And so we used to, I remember vividly at sort of eight, nine, ten years old, just looking up every day as Concord would come into land Amazing. and the whole house would actually shake. But it actually created, I think, a sort of a real sense of mesmerization and an inspiration of just sort of where's that plane going? Although I knew it was obviously going to New York, which I'd never been to. And so I think really it came down to sort of the realization of travel and, and what that could mean. So I took a year off before going to university to try and find out a little bit more and learn a bit more about myself. And it was a formative time. And I self-funded that because my folks weren't very happy. And they actually, the place I went to was actually Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. And so my first ever visit, or my first ever time for traveling outside of Europe was actually to Asia. And the first city I landed in was Singapore. Oh, really? So there's a certain interesting point about that when I look back and the fact I'm actually now here and it's, I've been here 20 mm. years. Um, but ultimately, I decided that this is something I wanted to do and I wanted to experience, which was when I was backpacking over those three months before I started university, I actually set myself a 10-point plan, which I think says something about me, uh -huh. of what I wanted to do by the time I was 30. And included in that was, was living in Asia. So I think there was something quite emotional that sort of got to me around this part of the world. And then rolling the clock forward, my father popped into the scene again. Eight years later, he saw an ad in the Sunday Times where Singapore Airlines was looking for general management trainees. 
even though I wasn't quite qualified for that, I speculatively emailed my CV in in early December. In the beginning of January, I flew out to Singapore to meet the team. And here I am 20 years later. So I think, uh, I guess that the journey in a way, I feel that the coming back into travel really, really started with those first years in travel at Singapore Airlines. And actually, I've been at BA before, as you know. Yeah. And I think that it's interesting, sort of 10 years sort of in the, in the industry at the beginning, I sort of feel like I'm bookending it somewhat, sort of going into it in this sort of later stage in my career after having an amazing time in between. Mm, it's really interesting, though, isn't it? The travel industry really gets into your blood. I know that, you know, I'm now on a board, a luxury travel company board, and I'm absolutely loving it. Just being back in travel is just just incredible. I think there's just something about when you start in the travel industry, how it's so exciting and so fulfilling. Well, let's also not beat about the bush. It's sexy and glamorous, girls. You get to, <laughs> you get to stay in Mandarin Oriental hotels if you're lucky. You that travel at the front end of the plane if you're working for an airline. Those things, the perks are pretty good. Good point, well presented. <laughs> now, but Joe, you talked about how travel is bookending your career. You know, you started in travel and you're in travel now. But I think the, the question mark for listeners might be, well, you know, what were you doing Let's take immediately prior to Mandarin Oriental. And how did you come to that decision that it was time to leave that role and that company to sort of jump into Mandarin? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So as, as you know, and for our listeners here, I've actually spent the majority of my career at Google. I had the pleasure of joining the company back about 12 years ago. And, you know, plug to you, Claire Hatton, mm -hmm. uh, back in the day, you actually gave me that introduction to the organization as they were setting up in Singapore in those early days. And you were running the travel business in Australia where they had a far more mature model. So I had the joy of joining. Google let me in and um, I started off leading their top accounts team, which fast evolved to leading their consumer goods team right at the very beginning of um, them setting up in the region. So that was a sort of a change management role at the very beginning and building something from nothing, which actually was a pattern for my career. And then shortly after that, I had the opportunity to apply for, for a role to lead as Google Singapore, which I was lucky enough to land and had the most incredible opportunity to really help transition the organization, you know, from a, a decelerating business, actually, as we'd started to decentralize a lot of our operations across the region to actually start to look at Singapore and really sort of define what the future for Singapore as a sales office would look like and, and was able to, to really shift that perception for the brand and as well as to help establish the roots for the business there. Um, and a new operating model for us. And it also coincided with a big investment in Singapore with our engineering teams moving in and a movement to our new shiny headquarters where we really, really revisited the whole way in which we operated within the market. So a very exciting role. And I finally ended up leading our partnerships team for the region. So I think if I sort of look at those sort of three or four different roles within Google, which were tremendous in every sense of the word in terms of professional growth, transitioning through change, leading teams and distributed teams at scale, which was, was certainly my last role. What I did also realize is that, you know, as we start to grow as, a, as an organization, there's only so far that you can grow. And uh, for me, actually, the decision really was, where do I want to go next? And where was I going to learn more? And I felt that in a regional role, I was acting more as a relay between global to local or vice versa, rather than really being able to drive decisions and have the level of impact that I knew I could have having prior to Google worked in a global role. Maybe head office was the right place to go. But like anything, the decision isn't just rational, it's also emotional. And I really had to take a step back and really think about what wired me and what excited me. And what it came down to 
but there were three big things that I really got energy from and I felt was was me performing at my highest. The first was I really liked the complexity of a global role. And I hadn't actually done that at Google. I'd done that prior to Google when I was at, at British Airways. I'd done that at Singapore Airlines, which was my entry point into the region. And I actually missed that complexity because I really felt that in the world that we're operating in, actually, I benefited from being in different sides of the fence. And I could actually, uh, I'd love to tackle sort of more global issues and be connected more whilst also staying connected to Asia. I felt that was really important for me. And I worried that leaving the region, I would lose out on the incredible growth that's happening here and something I really, really believe in. But the second big point really was around how can I drive impact? And there were two areas that got me thinking. One was around a vantage point. And that was, you know, are there opportunities for roles where I could actually be able to make key decisions for the organization? And so it started to proximity to chief executive became quite an important priority for me. It was not about the job title so much as, as having access to decision making and being able to make those decisions. So that became important to me. And then, and then finally was the ability to drive white space. Are there new frontiers that I have the mandate to change versus optimizing the current? So really, when I broke that down, there were three things I wanted. I wanted a global role. I wanted proximity to leadership to make decisions and be empowered to do that. And then the third area was really about the opportunity to drive white space. And so to ultimately answer your question, the phone rang and um, it was a, a former colleague who was now a headhunter. And he contacted me and called me and said, wanted to pick my brains as they always do for a role. And as we started to talk about what he was looking for, I said, that's really interesting. That really fits with some of the things I'm thinking about in terms of my next move. And, and really, that's how I sort of got lured in. So a conversation became a reality in a very short period of time. And I think that it was the clarity of what I really wanted was able for me to tick that off. Yes, it reported to the chief executive. Yes, it was a global mandate. And yes, it actually had a transformational uh, and white space brief to explore. And Joe, how did you get such clarity? What did you do? And how long did it take? Great question. I can tell you how I did the right thing. What I thought was the right thing, which was to start to speak to a, you know, a few sort of senior leaders who I thought could help me. And I spoke to two very senior leaders. One was based in Asia Pacific and one was based in New York. And both of them knew me well, both of them I trusted, both of them had helped me on my journey. So I knew I had support system. And I got onto both of those calls and in both calls, I realized that I wasn't clear about what I wanted. I just missed two amazing opportunities, speaking to people that really have got incredible influence, know me and support me. But literally, when they asked me, how can I help you? What exactly do you want? I couldn't answer that question. So that took me into a self-reflection mode. And I started to map out where do I get my energy and what are the things that matter to me? And so I started to go through all of the things that frustrated me about the role I was doing at the time <laughs> and all the things that I got energy from. And then I reflected back on my career and where had I done well and where did I, was there a pattern of strengths that enabled me? And that started to help me start to think that the global thing started to surface. It was when I was in global roles where I really, that complexity really excited me. And that was a realization that regional was not the right place for me. I wanted to be in a global role or a local role. Did you do this all on your own? I did. Right. Okay. I did. I really did. I just started to rationalize it. And then I started to, to articulate it. So I talked to my husband and, you know, does this make sense? Am I, you know, and I started to just think through what were those sort of tenets and I got absolutely acidity. 
And I started thinking, what about this role? And another thing that happened, and I think this was another trigger, was I went online and I started looking at roles online. You know, so I started looking at chief, you know, growth roles and chief commercial roles and various other big named roles. That, and I started to look at them and started to go, oh, I like the sound of that. Why do I like the sound of that? What's interesting me about that? So it's almost like I was testing my hypothesis just through my own research. It just started to become really clear. So what was a, honestly probably three months of sludge where I was just thinking about things, but being a bit rudderless, I think it was the actual forcing mechanism of these two leaders to really sort of ask me, how can I help you? And quite frankly, really, I couldn't ask them and leverage them in the way that they could. I mean, it wasn't their job to tell me or coach me through that process. It was my job to be clear of where they could help. I think that's a great learning. It's a really great learning for people because, you know, if you do want to leverage other people's help, then having a level of clarity is really helpful. You know, it's it's great that you did it by yourself. I think it often takes somebody else to help you, but you've obviously got the tools and the experience to go through that process on your own, which is awesome. And now you've landed the chief commercial officer at Mandarin Oriental. Is it what you expected it was going to be? So so in a, in a, in a short answer is yes. And I think that is really, really amazing that that is true. Uh, And the reason being is that I went into it with my eyes open. I had some genuine concerns, particularly around the mandate for change and the readiness of the organisation to be able to actually drive that. The interview process, the conversations that I was fortunate to have really sort of encouraged me and opened up to me that actually there was a huge amount of transparency And I was given incredible access to individuals with very different perspectives of the organization experiences within it, which enabled me to start to see that actually, you know, there was a commitment against change in all of these different areas and positive change and a willingness and receptivity to make a difference. And this role would be critical within that. And I really felt coming out that I could make a difference, but that wouldn't be an easy one necessarily. And it would take time but the time was was okay. So I felt very, very comfortable with that decision. It's going to be a year in April that you'll have been there. So that means you joined sort of kind of slap bang in the middle of, well, our generation's (laughs) only global pandemic. You know, how on earth does a hotel group cope during COVID? That's right. Well, look, you know, I did join during COVID. So I clearly went in with, you know, I say eyes wide open around the organisation. I also believe very deeply that we will get through this and COVID may take a year, two years, three years as it's manifesting itself to be. But, you know, the world has been through pandemics before and it will come out the other end. And what I believe was actually that's an opportunity as much as it's a challenge to really use that time, because as we all know, it's a pivotal time where behaviours are changed, new behaviours are formed. And actually, as you're seeing that, you know, luxury and hospitality and role of brands are starting to to really rethink in the eyes of the consumer. So for me, it was around playing the long game rather than the short game. And what have you learned about yourself as you, you know, because yes, you went in eyes open about COVID, but you probably weren't anticipating, you know, Ukraine war or floods and yeah, even Omicron. What have you learned about yourself in terms of how you manage crisis? 
think that the big thing is being able to be realistic about what you can control, not what you can't. And I think that, you know, when we look at control, there's so much we just cannot control during crisis. It's beyond your whatever you wish, whatever you want. You can't change those things. But what you can control is how you show up. You can control how you prioritize your time. You can control how you make your teams feel. You can control prioritization. You know, when you start to bring it down to activities, you can control time horizons. And so for me, I think that the clarity of that is, you know, no matter how you're feeling through that period, that you just have to focus on what you can control, not what you can't. And I think an acceptance of the reality that everybody in crisis is experiencing things differently. And so to not make assumptions of just because you feel one way or, you know, everyone is going to feel that way. So I think being receptive and open to understanding those pieces and pausing and listening and creating hopefully an environment where where some of those discussions can be had. So I think for me, it's been around clarity, where I can have an impact, you know, where I can't, trying to make sure that the teams are focused, they're given the support that they need because of their individual circumstances and providing positive belief and support that we will get through this. Because I think people do need to see that there is light at the end of the tunnel and history will evolve and history will move on and we will get through this. Yeah. Um, So I think being positive through most of that. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, overall, I would describe you as a very positive person. So that probably bias towards positivity, even though you're a pragmatist, for sure, probably is helpful. But it must be quite hard because I know you're doing a global role and global roles, you know, as much as yes, they're, I think they are actually closer to decisions and potentially have more impact than regional roles. They're also really hard in terms of you know, being up at all hours of the day, you know, you probably got what Europe in the morning, Asia during the day, US in the evening. How do you put things in place to sort of stop yourself from being consumed at work if you do? Yeah. And I mean, I think, so first of all, I should say at the moment, I'm based in Singapore and majority of my team are in Hong Kong, London and or split rather between Hong Kong, London and um, New York. And there's a few other other places. So (laughs) that from Asia is not the best time zone. No. And so, you know, obviously London becomes a very sociable time zone when you compare it to everyone else, because at least everything, it coincides with both of those two times. So I think the first thing is, is looking at your week. And I haven't got this right all the time. And it's probably taken me sort of when I'm hitting a bit of exhaustion to go, hold on, how do I take control of this one? And how do I correct it? So the learnings are, (laughs) first of all, you know, don't bookend your days. I think that, you know, eight o'clock in the morning and then an eight o'clock at night, you are totally going to burn out. Yeah. You're toast. You're toast. You can't operate well. You're either a morning person or evening person. I mean, I can do either, but I can't do both very well. I've tried to make sure and try to where possible, you know, if we're going to have late calls, you know, let them go on to 11 o'clock at night or whatever it might be. And let's run them, you know, a Tuesday and a Wednesday. But I can't have it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday. Mm. And Friday is sacrosanct. I'm not taking calls. <laughs> that's, a, that's Friday glass of wine, isn't it? That's right. I just like, no, you know, within reason, no, you know, I'm putting my foot down yeah. there. And I think it's important to say no as well. So I think no bookended days is first thing. What does that then do? It gives you then the opportunity to retool your day. 
So, you know, I haven't been diligent in this respect, but it's certainly trying to, for example, you know, tennis is my thing, as you know, Claire, actually getting the opportunity to go and play tennis at eight o'clock in the morning. So, you know, I'm at back at the desk at 9.30, but I've done some exercise during the day and I'm energized. That's really important to carve that out. So these are things I'm trying to figure out, trying to say, okay, fine. I need to have human interaction. I need to see people. So industry meetings or, you know, going to the hotel to see the GM here, finding time, carving that out over lunchtime, for example. So I've got sort of a drumbeat. Industry people meeting them for breakfast in the morning. So trying to make my day not just a humdrum of just sitting in front of a computer um, going mad, but really trying to balance it and retool that and plan around it. Yeah, and they're all really great things. And I'm sure it's not easy and isn't perfect all of the time or perhaps even any of the time, but putting in those kind of boundaries, I guess, sounds like definitely the right thing to be doing. And I so relate with the can't sit in front of a computer all day. Um, I've been going spare, you know, when we had lockdowns and the like and realised what a needy extrovert I am (laughs) or can be. (laughs) That's right. No, but it is. And I mean, I'm not brilliant with my own company. I'm, you know, I'm I'm a people person. So, you know, and I have to say the joy I've had when I've connected with the teams, I have to say it's been incredibly intense because everyone's making the most of the time you've got. But, you know, I was just in New York and it was just incredible. You know, I think I had something like 20 meetings, 25 meetings in four days. It was a little bit too much. But, you know, we packed a punch. We made it work. (laughs) And I was energized. You know, it was so brilliant. Oh, that's a classic. I'd love to get us to sort of step back now, Joe, and think about sort of your career, big picture, and those kind of moments where you've had a real kind of like penny drop or an aha moment based on advice that's being given to you. Can you sort of think about, you know, the best piece of advice you've been given and share what that was and what your circumstances were at the time? Yeah, absolutely. The best advice I had was I was at a crossroads at Google and it was my first role there. I was three years in and, you know, three years was quite a long time in a role. And so I saw that they had posted a role for the head of Singapore um, to be the managing director. And I looked at him and I was like, I really, really want to to go for that role. And then I thought, well, I'm not going to get it. So what's the point? And I'd already rationalized in my mind, you know, the four or five people that were already lined up for that role. And, and I wasn't one of them. And I figured, you know what, they know where I am. If they wanted me, they would have just tapped me on the shoulder and invited me in. And that hadn't happened. And no one had called me up. And so I sort of felt that, to be honest, it wasn't something that was had my name on it. And again, fear of failure, I suppose, didn't want to go for something and look, look stupid. So I, I left it. And uh, I had a colleague who was pinging me. She pinged me with a link to the role in capital letters. Why are you not going for this role? It's got your name on it. And I was thinking, well, it doesn't have my name on it because there's all these people that are in the pipeline that they've clearly got lined up. And, you know, they would have let me know and they'd have tapped me on that shoulder. And the rest, they say, is history. And so I'd already self-deselected. So I pinged it back and I said, I'm walking around, you know, I've got five minutes, I'll come and have a chat. So we sort of into the corridor, you know, walked to the micro kitchen to get a coffee. And I said, look, you know, I won't mention this person's name. I'm not going to to go for it. They know where I am. If it was right for me. And she said, it's not about you. (laughs) I love that. And I was like, what do you mean it's not about me? Of course it's about me. (laughs) It's not about you. It's about doing it for all the women at Google. Love that. And I went, tell me more. And she said, (laughs) Joe, 
you are the most qualified for that role in this organization that's a female here. You need to be sending signals that you're ready and it's the right thing to do. I need you to do that. And I just went, yeah, you're right. You are so right. It's not about me. It's about us as a community. Do it for the women at Google. And so suddenly there was no fear. It wasn't about me. It wasn't about getting the job. It was about signaling. And so I then proceeded to drop that, hello, email, um, is the role still open? I'd be really interested to have a conversation. And without going into the sequence of events that then followed, of which that's an, another story and could take another podcast, because <laughs> it involved a number of, of very interesting twists and turns, I managed to get that role. Yeah. And, you know, to this day, it really reminds me of the importance of listening and team support and community support. Talk about flipping the perspective, you know, like it's not about you. This is about signaling. I mean, who does naturally think about that when they're applying for a role? It's funny because, you know, obviously I was working at Google at the same time. When you got that job, that was a complete obvious next step for me, for you. That's fascinating. And so that, I think, probably shows you how, you know, and it's International Women's Day, isn't it? It is, um, as we're speaking. We're, yes. Or month as we're speaking. And I do think that as much as one's self-actualization and awareness is there, what these situations do really shine on is just actually how are you perceived and how are you, you know, acknowledged. But I do think to this day, I still wonder why, you know, if that was true, why did nobody come and tap me or encourage me? That's not their way that they operate. I mean, guys don't wait to be tapped on the shoulder. I think it's actually quite a And you want someone thing. who's hungry for the role too, you know, yeah. especially when it's yeah. a big role where the whole business, you know, kind of like relies yeah. on it. You kind of need to know that person's hungry and not being passive and waiting maybe. But nonetheless, it's just a fascinating yeah. story. I think the other thing, you know, though, is um, the International Women's Day theme is break the bias. And I think there is some bias in, you know, people just thinking, well, maybe she doesn't want it. Otherwise she would have put a hand up for it or she doesn't feel that she's ready for it. It's those assumptions, those biases that people have that maybe don't get them to reach out. But, you know, on the other flip side, it's also the bias of us as women to think, well, you know, if we're valuable, then people are going to tap us on the shoulder and tell us to go for that job. So yeah, it's a fascinating one. Mm. But I'm so glad that you're colleague, um, peer did that for you. And actually for all of us, because I think it's incredibly important that women support women. Yeah, I do. I think so. And I think that definitely the first question I was asked, because the job had been posted for about a month. And the question was, why is it taking you so long? Yeah. And that in itself was a bit of a stifling question. And I just had to say, well, honestly, I I had to really reflect on it and, you know, cobble together some story. Yeah. But I said, I thought you'd have tapped me. <laughs> I thought you'd have actually come and, and encouraged yeah. me to go for it. I assumed this was slotted and you knew exactly what you wanted. And that was the genuine view. And it was like, well, no. And I think that bias, you're right, Claire, was validated in that process. And it made me go, crikey, I've totally misread this situation. Mm. But I think the best bit about it was it became not about me getting the job. It became about me doing the right thing. Yeah. And I think that just almost took the pressure off. Although I remember saying, 
you do realize now I'm in it. I'm in it to win it. <laughs> yeah, because you're not a bit competitive, are you? I'm not, I was no. like, no, I'm in. I'm like, this is, <laughs> you know, this is not a just show up, you know, this is the real deal. So that was something that once I got my mind into that mode, it, I was very clear. I wanted this no matter what. And, you know, I needed to prove myself. Oh, Joe, we can really hear, you know, your clarity of focus and your determination and grit. And I'm kind of wondering, you know, what does success look like for you? How do you define success for yourself? It's so interesting. I was on a conference with Harvard actually a little while ago and some incredible folks there and they invited me and I was like, thank you. That's very nice for me to be here. And one of the husbands of a lady on the panel grabbed me afterwards and said to me, you know, life is really interesting. He said, but what I heard from you is that life is around three things. And that's the first phase is learning. The second is earning. And the third is giving. And I'd never heard that before. And I thought it was a really nice way of thinking about life in a broader context. And I said, you know, it's interesting, but I haven't quite figured out the third piece yet, which is the giving piece. And, you know, when I look at success now, I think ultimately it is about giving and it's giving within the, each day that you're in the office, you know, what, it, what in the office or online. But, you know, how are you contributing to a greater good? How are you driving impact? What is the impact you're having on other people's lives? Are you helping them in their careers rather than just driving the corporate agenda? And how are you growing as an individual? And so if I look ultimately at success for me, it's around being able to make a difference, a positive difference. And I really think that as I'm looking at sort of the next 10 years, you know, I would say the one thing I've realized through this whole COVID and obviously more pressing matters happening at the moment is the importance of time being a commodity and the importance of leveraging time. And so I'm trying to figure out, you know, as I talked about my days, how do I make those days meaningful? And how do I get back more time to be able to spend it with the people I love, you know, doing the things I love to do and to contribute and to give back in different ways. So I'm trying to navigate that for me, which is make a positive difference to this world, but really ultimately do a better job of owning my time. Absolutely. You know, my kind of theme for the year, and it's not like, let's talk about me for a second, but it's like, it's be thoughtful about how you spend your time because I think, yeah, the older you get, the more experience you have, the more you know, wow, this is so precious this commodity and you have to be so thoughtful about how it's all allocated. Well, Jo Flynn, it's been such a fascinating and enjoyable conversation. And if listeners wanted to learn more about you and the amazing brand that you're working with now, where could they go or how could they do that? Well, absolutely. Definitely go to mandarinoriental.com and you're very welcome to see all our offers and opportunities there to find out about our properties around the world and some of the exciting places that we're opening. But if you want to find out and connect with me, just check out my LinkedIn profile, just search for Joanna Flint. Mandarin Oriental or Joanna Flint Google and I will come up somewhere and look forward to connecting. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Joe. It's been awesome. Yeah, it's been brilliant. I've learned even more about you than I knew already. <laughs> that surprises me. <laughs> it's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much for the time and the opportunity and happy International Women's happy Day. Happy International Women's Day. That's such an incredible story about Joe's colleague telling her she had to apply for the Google Country Manager role by telling her it wasn't about her. 
That was just awesome. You know, that she had to do it for all the other women in the office. I've known her for more than 20 years and I, I hadn't actually heard about that story. Yeah, and I mean, I just would love to have been a fly on the wall for that conversation, you know, because it's not often when you think about applying for a role that you do think about it from the perspective of other people. You know, it does naturally default, typically. So it's such a great lens to think about because it really took the pressure off. I also love that, of course, you know, not only did it take the pressure off, but she succeeded and the rest is history. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing I loved about Jo's story was about her process of getting so clear on what her next career step would look like. You know, yeah. really reflecting on where she got her energy, that realisation that she wanted a global, not a regional role, and also wanted the ability to drive change, including taking into account her role's proximity to the CEO. Yeah, she got really specific, and it was so impressive to hear how she took herself through that process. And now here she is, of course, in a role that meets exactly all those criteria, because kind of really that's what she came up with, was a list of key criteria for her next step. Absolutely. Yeah, she's super inspiring. Yeah. Well, that's this episode done and dusted. Our next conversation with an amazing and pioneering female leader will be with another inspiring tech leader, Uber's Lucinda Barlow. It's an awesome conversation, people. And a heads up that we're taking a break on the mini episodes for a little while. So we'll be back here in the same place, same time, in two weeks' time with that conversation with Lucinda. So till then, stay safe, take care, and ciao for now. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 